Hello and welcome to Army of Crime, the internet's only podcast. I'm here with my brother, Matt. Matt, how's it going today? Pretty good, pretty good, pretty solid. Cool. How's everything over there in North Dakota? It's getting wintry. Everyone always asks about the weather in North Dakota. It is getting wintry. It's not actually real cold out. And I like didn't bother wearing a hat or gloves when I went outside. Matt, you have to yeah. set a good example for your son. That's true. That's true. He wears his di- his, his dinosaur hat, his little that's spikes Im- on the top. That's important. Yeah. 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 So my name is Dustin, which I did not mention before, but we are the hosts of this merry, intrepid podcast. And today we have two things that we are going to discuss. One of them is the Argentinian comic book Mort Cinder, which is written by Hector German Osterheld and drawn by Alberto Breccia. And then we are going to talk about the Taiwanese new wave film, The Terrorizers, directed by Edward Yang. Is that accurate, Matt? That is accurate. That is accurate. Both those things are good. They're different. I am glad that I read both, read and or watched both of them. I actually just watched The Terrorizers last night, so it's pretty fresh in the memory banks. Got to keep things fresh in those memory banks. Which one would you like to talk about first? Since you just said you just watched The Terrorizer, should we talk about that first? Yeah, we could do that. So, The Terrorizer is a 1986 film, as I said, a Taiwanese film by the director Edward Yang. And the story, such as it is, concerns a group of people in Taipei uh, and their lives intersect. Um, so we have a we have a young woman who we first see in the film escaping from a crime scene, but the police are surrounded by jumping out of a window and hurting, like breaking her ankle. And we have a photographer who takes her picture and then sort of like follows her surreptitiously at first. And then we have a doctor and the doctor's wife, a novelist. And the film as a whole sort of deals with the way these people's lives intersect. But I think in a more general sense, is just a portrait of like existential angst and sort of urban alienation. Overall, Matt, what did you think of the film The Terrorizers? So I knew absolutely nothing about this going into it, and I actually liked it a lot. On a technical, there's some technical things that I was struck by. Uh, I don't, correct me if I'm wrong, and maybe it was used very subtly, I don't think there is a, is there a soundtrack in this movie, or is it only sounds coming from the things the characters are doing? Oh, I did not uh, notice that. I mean, I don't, there's a credited, like, music, uh, you know, score. yeah. Maybe it was just used sparingly, but I remember thinking that while watching it, that there was a lot more sound coming from the world than there was, you know, like a soundtrack. There's a lot of interesting frames where it's like very cluttered. It's a thing where you'll have people standing and they'll like the people speaking are actually not even looking at the camera, which would be some kind of film school. No, no, they're actually like looking away or they're kind of standing off to one side and you'll have a cluttered frame with like a bunch of other objects or something. Or, or some kind of uh, equipment sitting in the background, which is interesting because, like I said, it's kind of a film school no-no, right, to have your subjects sort of 
off to one side and sometimes there's I mean there's literally a scene where there's a group of people talking and none of them are looking at the camera and it's like one long take of a conversation and then on the flip side uh, there is like some use of POV yeah he does these interesting things where that are sort of like disconcerting where you'll like show someone and then you'll cut to sort of like what they're seeing which I guess doesn't sound that strange but the way that uh, because of the way the film like freely jumps around between different locations without really cluing you in, uh, it, the, those like cuts can sometimes be sort of like weirdly, you know. Yeah, which is a weird technical thing to do, but it kind of works because, as you said, there's kind of a disconcerting aspect to it because nothing real jolting necessarily happens in the movie. In, I mean, up until like the last. 20, yeah, I mean, there's a minutes. few like moments of violence like sudden violence in the film but generally it's a very like still maybe not still but it, it's a film that's a lot more concerned with like these like long silences yeah and i was after it was over i was kind of thinking to myself like what was the point of this movie because it kind of leaves you on a question mark it's not a real wrapped up ending right and i mean I, it kind of is well, it's it's a very final ending, but it, it doesn't give you, you know what I mean? It's like you watch that, and I might, literally my first thought was like, huh, what was that trying to tell me? As you said, there's something about the existential angst of modern society. I think yeah. there's also something about how nobody is really what they seem to be. I think that could be the, the one-sentence thematic description, because all the characters really misunderstand who the other characters are. And I think you see that a lot in the character. And I believe, I'm not sure if she even is named in the film, um, the character who's like a criminal who like breaks her leg. And then she, um, when she's like stuck recovering in her apartment with her mom, um, she basically amuses herself by making prank phone calls. And unknown to her, the, these prank phone calls end up, like, playing havoc in certain people's lives. So it's like you have someone to the point where there's this shot. And I didn't even realize this was a thing, but her mom then puts a lock on the telephone so that you can't use it without a key, which I thought was, like, a, uh, it's interesting. But she um, basically she calls, randomly calls the house of this the doctor whose wife is a novelist and just like tells them like to meet her or whatever. And that makes the, the, the wife sort of suspicious that maybe her husband is cheating on her, which then sort of sets into motion these other events. So yeah. And, and then her character, like later you see her, she like deceives men by basically taking them back to a hotel room and like robbing them. Yeah, and we we see that she keeps directing people back to this address, and the address is the place, this crime scene that she escaped from in the beginning. Yeah. And she keeps giving that address out to people. I guess, like you said, just to keep herself occupied, because I'm not sure what the end game is there, but she keeps, because she can't actually meet them, so she's saying, like, come meet me at this address, and it's this address where this crime scene was there. And this other character has decided to take up the apartment there because after the crime scene, no one else would live there. Yeah, so the then, photographer then... gets kicked out by his girlfriend. And he also sort of like 
for reasons maybe unknown to him, finds himself wandering back to this address and then ends up like renting it and turning it into a dark room slash apartment. And then she's like sending the other characters to him. Un- yeah. unknown, unknown to both of the other characters and unknown to her because she has no idea what's actually located at this address anymore. Right. It's like this is the location that was like a big deal in both of these people's lives. And then for, you know, subconscious reasons, they for, for you know, find themselves like stuck on it in some way. The I, I feel I was going to talk about the uh, I think there's a there's a really great scene in this film where the husband and wife, uh, the doctor and the novelist. Um, the novelist is a uh, Zhao Yufen, played by Cora Mao, and then the doctor is Li Li Zhang, played by Li Luchun. And anyway, basically, the she's telling him that she's gonna like move out and she wants a divorce. And there's this great scene where, and it's this is kind of like one of those things that's like like you were kind of mentioning that's sort of unconventional, where there's a dialogue scene where one of them is standing, she's standing in the other room, and she's not looking like directly into the camera, but it is basically like just like a a medium shot just of her face, like looking towards the viewer as she is kind of explaining to her husband what's going on with her and her, the husband is sort of clueless but the as she explains it it's not like anything specific that he did or that anybody did it's just like this general level of like existential angst if you will of her like trying to get her life started and her and she's like always been making these changes you know like leaving jobs and getting married and writing a book and doing all these other things because she's like looking for a new beginning or a beginning of her life, like basically like trying to jumpstart some kind of like meaning or like purpose in her life. And I thought that scene was kind of like to me, like the heart of the film and those kind of like unconventional choices in like framing, I thought were really powerful in sort of the establishing, you know, the, the disconnect between all of the characters. Yeah. As you mentioned, there is, there's a scene where she's looking not like you said, not quite at the viewer, but she's, it's almost like a POV, but of some kind of third person that's watching. Because as I recall, he's actually not even looking at her. Well, he's, he's like, off, he's, he's off in, to one. In this scene, he's in like the other room. Yeah. So and he's there's like another scene where they're talking and she's looking straight on and he's like standing next to her. But it, it, yeah, these sorts of compositions where, uh, you know, in film school, they would teach you to shoot medium shots and like coverage and then like a wide shot or something and you could edit between them and he he, uh he seems to intentionally not do anything like that is i guess what i was getting at yeah i mean by having the characters you know it's like these characters are having these extremely awkward conversations where they can't even like bring themselves to like look at each other it's kind of like the feeling you get and it sort of heightens i think that feeling by just framing them in these like um, single unbroken shots rather than shooting and editing it like a conventional dialogue scene. Yeah, because the, the way their apartment is set up too is that you can see down one hallway and into another room while also looking into a, a room. That's her study. Yeah. So you can have them sort of move around this little space and move into like these two separate areas while still being inside the same shot. Yeah. And there's another part where he actually comes home and he's tra- talking to her 
without realizing. So it's just him alone talking to her, and he doesn't realize that she's actually not even there. So he's actually just talking to himself. Right. It's like they're so used to having conversations where they're not even like looking at each other that he just starts talking, assuming that she's in the apartment somewhere. And like I said, I think there's a, a through line of the characters not really understanding each other. I think it's certainly clear that the doctor does not understand the husband, or I'm sorry, the doctor doesn't understand his wife, the novelist. And there's some kind of um, bored housewife, idiot husband dynamic at play. I think it's also true, though, that she doesn't really seem to understand him, if that makes sense. Well, you know, in that scene that I was talking about, she kind of, I'm not sure that she really understands, you know, herself. It's just like this general. Yeah. You know, she maybe has some kind of depression or something that makes her be feeling like she always needs to be moving on to something else. I mean, yeah, if you're saying you always need something new to try and be happy, I mean, that's like a symptom of of depression or uh, some other kind of. I mean, you don't need to keep getting divorced and remarried. You probably need therapy or something. Not that people shouldn't get, you know, whatever their best life choice is or whatever. I'm not trying to. But you know what I mean. Yeah, she she doesn't really understand what he's going through um, or what he's trying to do. And he certainly has, like, not even the slightest idea of what she's going through. Because she's really circling the drain in a lot of ways. Another thing I want to mention is some of the, like, lighting is, like, so fascinating. Like, there's a, a scene in the film where someone's, like, having a conversation with someone else and the the other person is just, like, sitting, like, silent, like, completely in the dark. And there's, like, some really, you know, like, interesting lighting where you see the photographer character, like, setting up his dark room, which just involves him, like, stapling, like, black, like, cardboard over all of the windows so it's like you have this character like there's a practical reason why he's doing this but the way it's shot it's like you have this character who's like intentionally you know walling himself off from the world and there's a specific uh, reason in the story while which why he's doing this sort of is because and i guess i'm not familiar with this but it seems like taiwan is a country where there's like a mandatory like military draft when you reach a certain age and he's basically trying to postpone that as long as possible so you see him you know, like intentionally like walling himself off in this dark room apartment, you know, by like just shutting out all of the light. I don't know. There's some really interesting play on, you know, like light in the in this film, I think, like keeping things like dark and shadowy and like hidden, which yeah, I think works really well. Yeah, I think there's some degree of like meta commentary with the, the film, like film within a film, because obviously you have the photographer and at one point he actually makes prints of the the girl character and puts them up like light, like huge over an entire wall. So you're looking at a wall of photographs to make up her face. So it's like photography within the film and he's like developing pictures. And then there's also a scene where the novelist is explaining what her book is about. And it actually shows it to us from like off of a TV screen. Like they recorded her talking and it looks like it's on some kind of interview show and then play it on a TV screen and then put point the film camera at the TV screen instead of just having us watch her be interviewed. So I think there is some kind of meta commentary about the characters kind of bouncing off the surface level reality and yeah. not really getting any deeper because he seems to have really built up the, um, the photographer. He's really built up this girl into some kind of 
character that he's really interested in. And it's not until much later in the film that he actually meets her. And we watching the film know that she's probably not a great person for him to be associated with. And he's built her up into this whole thing. And like I said, he's literally blown up a photograph of her into a bunch of prints and put it up on the wall. Yeah, there is. Yeah, as you mentioned that, yeah, I think you're right that there is maybe some kind of like meta level of like media like disconnect of the way that like we're separated by these media and the way that it's like more comfortable for people, you know, to deal with things through that like level of disconnect. Like the photographers, you know, become so accustomed to the images of this woman that that's like the way that he's like used to, you know, dealing with her and dealing with the world in general. And there's also an interesting level of like, I think another maybe sort of like meta level of like art imitates life, imitates art, where you see the the de- like the plot details of this novel that she's writing ends up like things from that like end up happening in real life, sort of. Yeah, and there's a level inspiration where... from the things happening to them, and then the things happening in the book, like her publishing the book, causes more events in the plot to happen. Yeah, and then it certainly does a number on her husband's head when he reads the book and find out like the details from their life that she's put in it. Yeah. I mean, it's not like a direct kind of like convenient thing of like the book comes to life or like the, the events of the book end up happening completely, but there is like sort of an interesting um, like puzzle box element where you see, you know, the lives of all these people and how they interact with each other and then how the fictional events in this novel and then end up, influencing you know the real life events and the way that these all these you know plot elements and uh locations and characters sort of all like ping pong off of each other yeah uh here's a question what does the title refer to i was wondering that too so based on the first two minute title i thought this was a movie about gangsters or something yeah uh, the the opening is a bit misleading because there's like a gunfight kind of like in an alleyway with these like uh, crooks and these cops. So the cop does end up showing up later. But I think my guess for the title would just be about how um, the terrorizers would describe the role that basically all of these characters play in each other's lives, like uh, intentionally and unintentionally. You know, like that whole, isn't that a, a line by Sartre of like hell is other people? Yes. Yeah, so, like, you know, on that level of these characters all being, you know, terrorizers to each other, like, on purpose sometimes, and then other times completely, you know, oblivious. Right, because the injured girl has no conception of the fact that she's, like, throwing monkey wrenches into other people's lives, and then the novelist ends up throwing monkey wrenches back in other directions, like, by publishing her novel and making the choices that she does. Right, and then the photographer, by, like, following this girl around after the beginning scene where she gets injured and, like, taking her picture and stuff ends up playing a part into the film as well. Because then he later reaches out to the husband, the doctor, and tries to sort of maybe explain what's the things that are going on that we are, that the audience can see is sort of these coincidences. And he tries to, like, maybe explain them, but that, of course, ends up just, like, careening off into other directions. Yeah, that was, I thought, another interesting use of that meta-commentary. Like, the photographer is also, like, the outside character. In in some ways, he's, like, the um, 
he's like the audience surrogate in in, in relation to that storyline because he knows more of how this happened than even the woman who wrote the novel even than even the novelist he knows like the whole thing and he's trying to like explain it to the other characters right in some from, way from I his like outside vantage point as the yeah as so as like the voyeur he's almost like a filmmaker or audience surrogate like an outsider yeah like a hitchcockian kind of right you had the the injured leg and the photographer, but not in the same person. I did think of that while watching it. It's I, I actually thought, didn't put but... that together till right now. Yeah, but that I, I would guess that that's maybe intentional or maybe not. But yeah, it's definitely something there. So yeah. it sounds like we're both yeah um, fans. You know that Hitchcock comparison is interesting too because Hitchcock does a lot with like uh, estranged. Well, I don't want to read too much into it, but it. it it's not entirely like there's a little bit of a scrambled rear window thing going on. Right. With like the miscommunication and the, the assumptions. And then the, the person that's laid up. So they have nothing better to do. Yeah. And they, they get more sucked into other things. That's true. You could almost like read it as like a rear, rear window riff. So anyway, I was saying it sounds like we were both uh, big fans of this film. Yeah. I, so- I have not seen... I don't know how many Taiwanese movies I've seen, I guess, but I, I liked it. I would I would see more by this director, Edward we, Yang. We covered a Taiwanese film earlier on this podcast. We did, a historical epic, so extremely different from yeah, the, this is more every like possible way. In, an art house film of what is considered to be the Taiwanese new wave, which was in like the mid to late 80s, which I'm not super familiar with. So this was kind of my um, introduction to that. And I know Edward Yang went on to make a number of extremely well-regarded films in addition to this so it definitely seems like someone who's worth uh looking at further and i believe we both watched this film on uh amazon prime video anyway yeah the terrorizers Shifting gears completely, we're going to talk about a comic book. Imagine that on this podcast, we're going to talk about a comic book. This comic book is called Mort Cinder, and it is a collected volume of a comic strip that ran in Argentina in the 1960s, written by Hector German Osterheld and drawn by Alberto Breccia. And it is the story of a character named Mort Cinder, who is in some way or capacity that's never completely explained is, uh, seems to be immortal and has lived through like lived centuries and has, has firsthand experience of these like important historical events and some, you know, non-important historical events. And his uh, sidekick, sort of, is an antiquarian named Ezra Winston, who runs basically like an antique store. And Mort Cinder is able to shed light on some of the objects in the antique store based on like his firsthand experience as an uh, s- sort of immortal witness to history. But the main drawing point of Mort Cinder is not any of that crap I just said, but in fact, the art, because as you go through it, it's a black and white comic book. And I mean, where to begin to talk about the visuals of Mort Cinder? 
Yeah, I read. I don't know. If, did you read the ap- the afterwards? I kind of skimmed it. It mentions, I believe, it's his, his um, Alberto Breccia uh, talking his daughter, and he said that he would draw in a room lit only by candles. And you're like, yeah, I get that because there's some... these deep, there's deep, deep blacks. There's like levels of black in the black and white art. It's and almost it... like this inky, like like the shadows are like alive and trying to smother things. It's it's yeah, it's he takes very good use. You know, sometimes we think of black and white as like, oh, it just lacks color or something. Like it's just art with no color. But yeah. this is like black and white, very intentionally, very technically using black as a as a medium. I mean, it's like shades of black. There's there's an inkiness to it and like a physicality to the art, if that makes sense. It it does because I think in that same afterward that I read, it mentioned his use of like uh, razor blades and other sort of like odd instruments to sort of like craft this like artwork. Like it was a very much um, sort of like experimenting with different media and with different tools to really like get like a unique look because some of these like blacks and the shadows have you know like smears and like textures to it that's like really impressive and it's interesting too because for the characters in the story you'll have these like really detailed like faces that have like uh, really evocative like expressions as far as like you know the acting if you want to say that but then you know the backgrounds are these almost like abstract like inky blackness blacknesses that are where you can like see the different like textures and like the line strokes you know like smeared onto the page it gives it this like very evocative very like moody like dark feel it's pretty amazing it's definitely you can definitely see the influence of this on like you know just for starters like frank miller and like sin city is is definitely like trying to do something like this or even if you think of like uh bill sinkowitz and the way that he would do art for like electro assassin and stuff like that where it's like a mixed media experimentation to try to like get a certain look going yeah the faces are are intense and apparently they're based on real people so i'm guessing he had them model for him or used a lot of photograph reference because the the faces are great, the, like it's just like these craggly, like sun worn, wrinkly men. As I say that, are there any women characters in this? There might not be actually. Now that you say that, it's a very masculine work, I guess. Yeah, I mean the situations that he, you know, looks back on are like war and prison, and other stuff too, like him being a slave helping to build the Tower of Babel. Which involves aliens. And working on a slave ship. Yeah. I like he to is say both a, a slave and a slaver at other times. And he owns a slave, too, when he's in uh, Sparta. Yeah. It's actually a good and interesting take on the Battle of Thermopylae. Because you have it from the perspective of someone who fought with the Spartans. And it doesn't go into a lot of the idealization of like Thermopylae as defense of the West, which is this kind of 300, both the, the Hollywood movie, the 300 Spartans. And then you mentioned Frank Miller, Frank Miller uh, circling back again to 300. And it's very much this like the West versus the East or something. And in here you have the battle of Thermopylae 
a telling of it that's really just from their perspective of the Spartan warriors, and they don't really talk about these sorts of high concepts, which they probably wouldn't have, right? They're just like, oh, we're Spartans, we're going to fight a war. Yeah. We're, we're Spartans, we're soldiers, and they're very proud of that. And I thought it was actually a good take on the Battle of Thermopylae. Like, I, I enjoyed reading it, and at no point did I go, like, ugh. I feel like Thermopylae lends itself to ugh, cringy takes, if we want to use the, the parlance of our times. It was actually a very interesting take. I like yeah. that story a lot. And the yeah. art there, he, he does a lot of things he doesn't do in the other parts, which is to show, like, battle scenes, because you do have a lot of these stories that are just, like, a handful of individuals in a room, and you get those great faces and the facial expressions, and, like, you mentioned the shadows. And then on the very last story, he just busts it wide open, and you've got, like, battle scenes with, like, dozens of characters fighting each other. Yeah, there's a lot. There is There are some, like, shadowy conversations with these, like, black backgrounds. But, yeah, there's it's a lot of, like, large detailed like battle scenes it is like there's even like full like splash page of a battle um it, it definitely does have like sort of a different look to it than some of the earlier more like horror influenced stories yeah it sort of veers through genres by using the mechanism of like this immortal guy sharing stories in the other afterward it mentioned mort cinder as the personification of history which I thought was very interesting. Yeah, because he often, this like Mort Cinder guy, it's not like he's a guy like single-handedly like setting historical events into motion. He's more of like a witness to these various things. I mean, he does, he's not like a completely passive character, but it's more just like a, a witness to the various events of history. Some of them being more historical fiction, like with uh, the Tower of Babel being revealed to be the launching point for an ancient spaceship. Yeah, there's some ancient alien stuff in there. That's sort of that veering through genres, because as you mentioned, it goes through sci-fi, horror, crime, and then historical epic. Yeah, there's a whole part through the middle that's about like a jailbreak. That's also great. And like the first story is very much like a horror story with Ezra, the antiquarian, like being haunted by like, or being like stalked by these like evil guys who are described as having leaden eyes yeah i actually thought that opening section was the least interesting part and that that's kind of the introductory section where it like sets up the premise and I, I found that i the once we got into the premise where they're like hanging out in his antique shop and he's just like spinning stories about his past is when it actually i i feel like it's when it takes off the opening part is like a kind of a twilight zone episode feel but i yeah. feel like Story-wise, is definitely the weakest. But it has some of the most beautiful visuals in it. Like, I love the way that he'll have used those blacks that we're talking about. And then in the next panel, he'll turn the blacks into negative space. So you'll have these white, you know, like trees or like a white background. You know what I mean? He'll like flip it inverse. So like to a make... negative image. Yeah. So it's sort of like still like stark and like scary looking. But now with a use of like white taking up the panel instead of black stuff like that i find fascinating and i love how you can see we were talking about like texture and how you can really like see the texture of the arc if you were to see it in person i would imagine it would be sort of like um, maybe like almost like bumpy is what it looks like you know yeah. like you like you can see him just like uh if you will terrorizing the page yeah mort cindering it mort cinder is a great name for a character it's like what is his name translate would be something like death ash or something yeah, 
Yeah, and it is. You could definitely see it as sort of like a as more at center of being like a witness to like death or almost like a death like figure. Because yeah. even though he never dies, or if he does, he seems to come back to life. It's not exactly explained, and you don't really need an explanation. But he's often seems to be witness to the death and misfortunes of others, and like seeing the way that like people like die sometimes in battle, and then sometimes like laying, you know, in hospital beds, slowly dying. But he's he's like a witness to history, and then like a firsthand witness to you know, death throughout history, which, of course, like you said, yeah, his, his name very much, like, evokes that. Yeah, and I, I appreciate it that we didn't go into it and be like, oh, he's actually Alexander the Great or something. He is just, like, a common person. is just sort of bumping his way through the, the tides of history, the gears of history, if you will. Yeah. Yeah, because he's, he's a soldier. He is a slave building... Um, He's a sailor. He's a soldier. Again, he ends up in prison. I can't. Does it say why he's in prison? It probably does. I don't recall. It but, mentions um, at the beginning he's being hanged for murder, but it never really explains. Oh yeah, at the very what beginning that was is for. like yeah. who he killed, or did he not kill them, or maybe he did and he doesn't. Yeah, I also he's more of like the, um, like you said, the sort of like every man witness to, you know historical events and to like the to like death and you know decay and stuff like that so matt what was your favorite uh mort cinder story you rec you mentioned the thermopylae yeah that would probably be my favorite i thought it was really cool you saw it was you know historically i mean i'm not like an expert but it seemed historically accurate in the way they talk about the thespians and the other greek allies being present because Obviously, the simplified 300 version is that it's just the Spartans there holding off the Persians. And they even mentioned at one point, oh, look, the Athenian Navy is, yeah. is doing something. They can see them kind of in the distance. So it feels like a more historically grounded take on the Battle of Thermopylae. And you have the perspective of him narrating it from many centuries later, because at one point he's telling his slave to go take a message back. And he says something like, it didn't occur to me at the time that I should just give him his freedom. So he is reminiscing somewhat from his modern perspective, where he's like, oh, I should have just freed my slave. Uh, but Because later he's working on a slave ship as a sailor, and he, like, sort of rebels against it and, like, frees, like, like frees the, the slaves as the ship is sinking. Yeah, and I thought it was a good view of the Spartan kind of ethos, where it's almost like war for the sake of war, because they don't get into a lot of rah-rah about you know defending Greece from the the evil Persians or something, it's almost like war is just their job, and they they do a good job at it, and they you know they have pride in doing a good job. That's sort of like military ethos. I don't know. I thought that was interesting. I would say that's probably my favorite. It's actually the last one, and I was disappointed to turn the page and have it be over. Yeah, and apparently there was talk of doing more more Cinder later, and it never materialized. I really like the uh, prison stories. There's like uh, two stories in the middle about him being in jail and like a jailbreak, which I thought were great because they have, you know, these like wonderful moody blacks, but then the, these like great like craggy faces of these like hardened, you know, prisoners. 
and they're like striped uniforms, which are, you know, extremely uh, striking in these images. And you have these like wonderful panels of like, you know, the prison is like this black smear on like a white background that makes it look like some kind of, you know, island floating in nowhere that you can't escape from. Which it sort of is. Which it sort of is, yeah. And then these like great, you know, shadowy conversations between the characters. And yeah, I, I thought the, I mean, like you said, I would probably agree that the first story, which is the longest and is kind of like the intro story, is maybe the weakest. Um, but I really like the prison story. I mean, I think all of them, it, it all like reads really well once you, you know, if, if you do find the, the first story, like I think we both kind of found that one to maybe go on a little too long, but the rest of them are all like uh, pretty amazing. Did you like the ancient alien stuff? I didn't mind it. I kind of have a soft spot for ancient aliens. I don't think they're true, like 0% truth. 0% was ancient aliens. And in fact, the concept is kind of racist. But uh, 180 counterpoint, I kind of like them as a fictional conceit. Yeah. Apparently, yeah. and I haven't read it, and I would very much like to read it, would be um, these two did a series of Lovecraft adaptations. Oh, that would be interesting. Yeah, which I would absolutely love to do. And I believe Lovecraft is like the creator of ancient aliens as a concept. Also, I was going to say there's a great World War One story in here, too. Oh, yeah. Yep. There's a great World War One story. There's it's interesting. We never see him die in the stories, but he always looks like the same age, kind of. In the first story, he dies. Yeah. In the first two, in the introductory ones, but in like the history ones. Yeah. He's he, like, he. yeah, he's always like the, the sole survivor. Yeah. Which is. Like he sees everyone else, you know, he sees everyone else dying. And yeah, he's, he's almost like cursed to be yeah, a witness. He's like doomed to like live on because of all of like, after all these like horrible things that he's seen, including like, you know, being on a slave ship and seeing all these, you know, like people thrown into the ocean and eaten by sharks and, you know, in, in various wars and all sorts of other horrible things. So again, I guess we're both going to say, Mort Cinder, it's good. Yeah, like I said, the the very first stretch, story-wise, felt a little weak. The art is great throughout. And then once you get into the meat of it, it's just solid, solid stuff. Very good. Yeah, and I think we both read it. There's a... No, like, in the last couple of years, uh, Fantagraphics put out a nice hardcover collection of this entire comic strip that and is... It even has one of those little ribbons that you can use as a bookmark? Yeah. Very classy stuff. I guess for my recommendation, I would put forward some of that uh, that good Frank Miller stuff that you had kind of mentioned, which you can see the sort of historical uh, through line, I think, from some of this work to, like you mentioned, his uh, black and white work in Sin City. Right, yeah, which definitely, and, in seeing this, you can kind of hazard a guess as to, like, where that came from, so to yeah, speak. Yeah, and, and I don't think Frank Miller really captures the, the physicalness of it, like, where it looks like you could almost touch the page, because I think in his black and white is a lot cleaner. It is clean, yeah. If that makes sense, but he's clearly trying to really take advantage of black and white as a concept, and not just as, like, a thing without color in it. 
which sometimes things are black and white because it's cheaper to not have color. But, you know, it's really trying to use black and white as like a medium. Right. In and of itself. Well, that's our show for this week. Uh, the one way you would spread some love to us is by leaving those tasty, delicious iTunes reviews or reviews on other podcasts, five-star reviews. Uh, they feed our souls with joy. But if you like the show, leave a five-star review. Uh, we are on all of the things. Actually, not all the things, but many of the things. So we're on Twitter at Army of Crime at Dustin four 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 four. Four 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 something like that, yeah. And armyofcrime.com, where we have like the catalog of all of our show. That thus concludeth, thus concludeth our episode. And if you wanted to leave a review, we would be appreciative, like Ezra Winston is appreciative in his antique store of Mort Cinder telling him stories. Yes, that is a much better. That is a much better ending point. In fact, it would not terrorize us if you left a review or a comment or even found us to recommend other uh, Argentinian comic books or other Taiwanese films, as I think uh, for both of us, this was just like slightly dipping a toe into that world, those worlds. As always, stay live out there, everyone. All the best films are the ones that are depressing.